I was 25 years old. I put everything on the line to open this business. The reality is that 50% of small businesses fail within the first five years. To be a successful owner, you need to adopt the mindset that you work for your employees. Enough with theory. I want to hear from somebody who's been there and done that. This is I Want to Hear Your Story by Dave Bloom, a podcast that offers real-life lessons, education, and inspiration for small business owners and employees. Hey, everyone. Dave here. And I'm very excited about this podcast with my guest, Peter Flory. Peter is the president of the Long Island Builders Institute, known as Libby, and is a major developer of senior and affordable housing on Long Island and in the New York metro areas as a partner in the DNF Development Group. Prior to forming DNF Development, Peter worked for the city of New York at a time of economic crisis and urban flight in the role of figuring out what to do with their massive amount of vacant and burnt out buildings. He then moved on to the Benjamin Group, a major property owner and developer in New York City, where the owner mentored him and taught him a lot of the skills he uses today. What I find extremely interesting about Peter is how he takes his great concern for his fellow human beings and balances it in a way that contributes to society while still running a very successful company. Peter is an avid marathon runner and uses physical fitness as a way to keep mentally sharp and focused. He is such a gentleman and carries himself in a very unassuming way for a person who has accomplished so much. I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I have, and I hope that Peter inspires you as much as he inspires me. Hi, good morning. This is Dave from Pioneer Truck Service. I'm sitting with Peter Flory in the Pioneer Studios overlooking the Great South Bay. Like everything else I do in my life, I usually dive in with something that is way over my head. I feel like Peter Flory is actually way over my head as a first guest. He's shaking his head no because he's <laughs> such a nice man. But I hear you just got back from Boston. Is that true? Yes, that is true. Just got back from Boston where I ran the Boston Marathon. On Monday, which is Patriots Day, and it was my sixth running of the Boston Marathon. Not one of my better showings, but it's always a great time. How many marathons have you run? That was my 19th marathon. That's pretty fantastic <laughs> in itself. Looking at people that I feel are successful centers around people that take good care of themselves physically. I mean, I think I enjoy running as much for the mental aspect of it as the physical aspect of it. I find it very meditational. It's my ability to disconnect from the world for whether it's a half an hour or three hours or whatever the time frame is. I've seen you at so many different meetings. I always wanted to sit and speak with you, but you're such an important person that it seems like there's always somebody tugging at your sleeve. <laughs> and I always wanted to see what makes Peter Flory be able to handle so many different things. And One of the really important aspects to success in business I have found. And this was really reinforced by my business partner when we first started, was our ability to do what we do, but then start to delegate out. That ability to delegate out where possible uh, has helped us grow and also be able to work in a lot of different spheres simultaneously while there are a lot of moving parts and a lot of different projects going on. And we have staff that we have worked with who have become knowledgeable in what we do that can take the ball and run with it. Just a quick story, if I might. About 12 years ago, 
I was in a meeting on a project I was working on with my prior employer. And we were in a meeting with Mayor Michael Bloomberg. One of the things that he said to us was the importance of delegation. And what he said was, it was in the middle of summer, they had just had a blackout in New York. And he was very upset with some of his commissioners who had been away on vacation and who rushed home in the middle of this blackout. And he was really upset with them that they had done that, that they didn't have enough confidence in their number two person to handle that crisis, that they hadn't built up their team in a way that they felt comfortable leaving their number two to handle that situation. That was a very interesting lesson for me. And I think part of his message was, guys, I really shouldn't be at this meeting, but you demanded that I be here, so I'm here. But my number two is going to handle this. That's that's amazing because that's something as a small business owner myself and a lot of my customers that are small business owners really struggle with. And I could see how that could definitely restrict you in your expansion of business. Yeah, there's always a fine balance between operating efficiently, not spending too much money on staff and finding that right balance, but also then growing the business and having enough confidence that you can find the folks that are going to help you grow and be able to sustain that growth. When we spoke briefly the other day, you said that your company alone has 200 or so employees. And then I'm sure you have massive amount of subcontractors and GCs. When you're looking for employees that are your number twos, like your real go-to managers, what do you look for in somebody like that? So we have three very distinct arms of the business. One is development. The second is construction. And the third is property management. In each of those disciplines, we're looking for, you know, the right ingredients in people uh, for those particular areas. For development, we have great people who understand what it takes to work through an entitlement process, uh, how to get zoning done, how to set up the financing. Uh, we deal extensively with public agencies, how to work well with them. In construction, we're looking for people who can build well, who can manage time well and get projects done on time and on budget. And then finally, in the property management area, which is perhaps the most difficult at times because we work in this affordable housing sphere, we need people who really understand compliance with all of the regulations that we deal with. And then, of course, handling the day-to-day -day operations, making sure that our operating costs are not exceeding the rental income that's coming in. You studied urban development in college. I did. I majored in college in, in urban studies and then went on to graduate school for a degree in city planning. And I always had an interest in housing. I took courses in housing finance and uh, how to address the affordability issues, which were, back when I was in school, already becoming an issue, not to the degree that they are today. But there was always that thread of an interest, not just in, in development, but in, in housing in particular. How much of your success would you say is from your education and how much would you say is from your actual being in the mix and being employed? My education was, I believe, very important to me, not so much for the specifics that I learned, 
but the ability to learn. You know, I always find that college, grad school is, is, is about learning how to learn, you know, and how to absorb and analyze and think abstractly and creatively about issues. And for that, it was extremely important. Yeah, I mean, I learned some principles about planning and so forth, but it was really more about uh, how to discipline myself and how to think about abstract issues. And for that, it, it was invaluable. Very cool. So we were speaking the other day about New York City, about that time when, when you were graduating from college and the deplorable conditions. And I remember driving on the Cross Bronx Expressway yeah. and seeing the burnt out buildings and they would put plywood boards in the windows with flower pots painted on them to try and dress the buildings up. But they were massive amount. It looked really like a war zone back then. And we had also spoke about an ex-boss that I had that had commented that he wanted to hire the people who could strip the cars on the Cross Bronx <laughs> Expressway because they could take the doors and engine and transmission out of a car with a pair of ice grips in 15 minutes. Yeah. Thank you know, tell, tell us about the city back then and when you were coming out. And originally, you were with the Housing Department of New York City, correct? I was. I, I worked for the city housing agency called the Housing Preservation and Development. Um, and I also worked for the city real estate department. It was called the Division of Real Property. Back at the time, the city was taking in uh, all properties that were went into foreclosure were taken over by the city. Uh, that's not the case anymore. So at the time, the city was the largest landlord in the city and had just huge amounts of property that they really didn't know what to do with, and uh, much of which was vacant, abandoned, burnt out buildings, many of which you saw as you drove along the Cross Bronx Expressway. It was a time that the crime rate was was much higher. It was a time when a lot of people had started to lose faith in the city and, and in cities in general. There was a lot of movement out of the cities and particularly out of uh, the outer boroughs. Uh, there were vast areas of vacant lots and vacant buildings. That, of course, has changed dramatically uh, in the last 20, 30 years. So seeing those conditions back then, and with the way that you care for underprivileged families and people today, was seeing the conditions something with you that said, I need to be involved in changing these conditions? Definitely. First and foremost, you know, I wanted to help. I mean, even though the affordability crisis wasn't to the degree that it is now, there were still a lot of families that were burdened by excessive rent payments that were living in substandard conditions that needed better housing opportunities. And that was an exciting challenge for me. The second piece was the economic development one. And when you're building housing, particularly affordable housing, it's not just providing housing, but you're also providing economic development. You're providing jobs and you're rebuilding communities. And that, that part was also very intriguing to me. I met you after I joined the Long Island Builders Institute, Libby. And my initial reason for joining Libby was to network with people and figure that there would be contractors and builders and they would have trucks and that this might be a good opportunity for Pioneer Truck Service to get more customers into the shop. But what I found out after joining Libby was that the real benefit in it was actually being associated with people that were making things happen. And one story that I have about you, because I don't have many stories about you because I can never get to you. <laughs> we were at a fundraising breakfast 
And I was kind of uncomfortable because I didn't really know anybody in the room. And there was either an open seat next to you or you looked over at me and you invited me to come sit next to you. And you had said something to me and it went along the lines of you have a very nice public presence. And I and I can't emphasize enough to you how much that meant to me at that moment, because I was very nervous about being in a room with a lot of different people who I didn't know. And for somebody of your stature to say that to me, it not only inspired me to maybe be a little bit more sure of myself in the public, but it also reminded me when I'm in situations with other people and how much of a difference you can make in somebody's life just by a couple of kind words like that. And I I can't thank you enough for that. It really meant a tremendous amount to me at the time. One of the great things that I find about Long Island Builders Institute, Libby, By the way, you're the president of the Long Island Builders Institute (laughs) now. Congratulations. I am this year, yes. Is that even though it's a great organization for networking, I have been introduced to, to wonderful contractors and the associates are just an incredible group of really skilled people. And of course, we have the best and the brightest builders on Long Island, many of whom I've gotten to know really well. And I, they're just really fantastic people. Uh, wonderful, compassionate people too. But the best things about being part of Libby for me has been the new friends that I've made. You know, yes, it's a trade organization and yes, it's about business, but also about creating those friendship bonds. And, and for me, that's that's been really fantastic. Lois, the operations director, had lunch with me last year and her question to me was, are you getting work from the members of Libby? And I sat there and I thought about it for a second at the time, and maybe this is when I really started realizing it, was that the work end of it comes through the relationships that you build with people. You don't join a trade organization and then people just automatically say, oh, well, we have a new member, let's send them work. It has to do with the people understanding what you're about and building trust and building relationships with people. In that conversation with Lois, it really dawned on me that the real benefit of being involved with this organization are the things that I've learned from the people, just being associated with them, just being around them and how willing they are to share their knowledge with other people. And the organization is incredible because like you said, I've never been around an organization with so many stand-up people in it. It's actually amazing. It is. And, uh, you know, what I find in the development world, things move, unfortunately, many times at at a real glacial pace, you know, so, you know, you have to nourish and allow time, unfortunately, in many cases, a significant amount of time to go by before things come to fruition. But that's also the case in in organizations like Libby, where, you know, it may take uh, some time before you actually see the fruits of all of the investment that one has made in the organization. But I tell you, when it starts to come back, it comes back. In 1988, you joined Benjamin Development and you rose to the level of executive vice president. 1988, how old were you at the time? I was 30. 30 years old and you're an executive vice president of, give us the scope of the size of this company, Benjamin Development. They were uh, what I would characterize as a a slightly larger than mid-sized development company, also development, construction, and property management. They had a portfolio of close to 7,000 residential units. Uh, Mid-size, that, eh? you know, a small company, <laughs> 7,000 units. Uh, and they were a significant player. Uh, they had grown uh, significantly, uh, you know, over a period of 20 years. I will say that I didn't start out as an executive vice president. I, I started out at a much lower level 
in the company. And uh, I did work my way up through the ranks through some pretty difficult uh, economic times. If you recall, back in 1988, we were right at the peak of a real estate bubble and the beginning of a pretty severe uh, recession. The, the market crashed in 1987 and uh, that, that began a, a fairly long and sustained recession and a really bad uh, real estate slump. It was just as I was coming on board, so I had to make myself useful. So as a young employee for this, what, what would you say your stress level was working under these conditions with this company? I mean, it sounds, sounds like the company was really struggling and they were probably leaning on, on you pretty hard at that point as a young person. There was a lot of stress. There was uh, a lot of very long hours. Uh, you know, we, we typically put in uh, 70, 80 hour weeks. There was also, you weren't just a, a development person or, or a sales person or, or a property management person. You know, you were all of those. And wherever you were called to work, that's what you did. So as difficult as a time stress-wise it was for you, it balanced you out as teaching you a lot of different areas, not just where if, if the economy was going good, they might just say, Peter, you're in charge of sales. Right. But you had to wear so many different hats at the time that probably helped you in your personal development moving forward. It really helped shape and educate me as I moved forward and prepare me for the next phase of my life, which was uh, forming DNF development. Was there somebody that mentored you that was really important to you? Definitely. I would say that my former employer, Al Benjamin, was certainly somebody who mentored me, who showed me very much by example uh, how a real estate development company can and in many cases should be run. Uh, I didn't always agree with him, of course. He was very much a contrarian on a lot of issues, you know, where he might be going in one direction, where the masses would be going in, this, in, in the opposite direction. But that was a very important lesson for me to realize that you can't always be following the herd. You got to sometimes go against the grain in order to, to make a difference. And I, to this day, sometimes think back on some of the lessons that I learned. And w when I'm confronted with an issue that I have to make a decision on, I oftentimes reflect back on that experience and, and what he showed me. So for sure, he was very much an important feature. The other person who was uh, very important to me was my father. And they're not so much in real estate because my dad was trained and, and received a, his PhD in biochemistry, but in how to live your life, how to be a human being, how to raise a family, how to be a good father, a good husband, and how to treat your fellow human beings. Your dad still lives in the same house that he raised you in, Princeton, New Jersey, which yes, is my mom, amazing. Yes, my mom and dad do. Your mom yeah. and dad, yeah. okay? And your dad's going to be 100 years old, which is amazing. Yeah, yeah we're blessed that he's been able to uh, live a wonderful, long, and very fulfilling life. You know, I think a lot of his success has been just keeping active and keeping interested in, in music and in, in art and in literature. And, you know, a guy, you know, goes through one or two books a day, you know, just really? a voracious That's reader, amazing. keeps up to date with news and follows uh, just about everything that's that's going on. Now, going back to your former employer that you said mentored you, when it was time to make a decision, and I'm sure you had very critical, large decisions to make, was he the type to let you make the decision on your own, live or die by it? Or was he 
forceful in trying to make you make your decisions the way he thought that they should be done. Well, he was certainly a bit of a control freak, you know, as developers often tend to be. But he would oftentimes give me a certain amount of rope. Sometimes things worked out. <laughs> Sometimes they, they didn't. And, and I would hear about it from him. But, you know, one of the things that I really admired about him was that he was open to new ideas. So when I would approach him, for example, as I did with the Arvin by the Sea RFP and say, hey, hey, would you would you be interested in exploring this? You know, a lot of folks, if they hadn't come up with the idea, might have rejected it out of hand. He was a very open that way. And that's something that I have kept with me ever since. You work for Benjamin. I'm assuming at the time you probably did well financially working for Mr. Benjamin with the scope of work that you were handling for him. And then you decide, hey, you know what? I, I don't want to work for him anymore. Tell us, like, what was your mindset when you were going through that transition? And what made you decide to go out on your own like that? That was one of the most difficult decisions I ever made when I decided finally that I wanted to really give it a try. And of course, I I had a family I had to support. Um, and yes, I was I was doing well at Benjamin Development um, and I could have stayed on there and been comfortable. But it had always been a dream of mine to go out and start my own company and you know, create my own developments. It had been a dream of mine since I was uh, little. And I had an opportunity. I, I had a very good friend who I, we would vacation together and with our families. And I found him to be very creative and had uh, good knowledge in real estate. And, you know, we, after a couple of martinis, would get talking about, you know, well, you know, we could do this or we could do that, you know, always kind of just never really getting terribly serious about it. But at one point, we came upon an idea that really resonated with both of us. And we said, you know, maybe this is something that could work with a combination of our, our knowledges. And he was already on his own. We came up with a plan that became the foundation on which uh, we were able to uh, get DNF off the ground. It's really important to understand that there were so many communities, especially on the South Shore, that were very blighted over through the 70s and 80s. I'm very familiar with Bayshore because I've always been down here. I boat from here. But your first big project that you did in that type of downtown development was in Patchogue. And since then, Patchogue has always been the community that people point to that say, wow, this really works well. But you were kind of a pioneer in making that happen at the time. Patchogue, you know, has become the poster child, really, for smart growth, transit-oriented development, you know, how projects really should be, how villages can come back and how they can prosper through the right kind of development. We were fortunate enough to get into Patchogue kind of on the ground floor as the village was transitioning from being uh, really a depressed uh, area to an area that is now considered very vibrant and successful. And, you know, we started working on the zoning for our assisted living project, Village Walk, in uh, the village of Patchogue, just before New Village, which is a large project that was developed by TriTech 
fellow Libby members that really transformed Main Street in a way that really, I think, benefited downtown Patchog. And so we came in just as that project was being completed. Uh, we started our construction. That benefited us greatly. But the most important thing, I think, is here's an example of a mayor who has led the process in a way that took a lot of courage because early on in his tenure, there was a lot of opposition to what was being proposed in Patchogue. And he said, no, if we do this the right way, if the buildings make sense for the community and they are designed in a way that is compatible with the surrounding architecture and is beautiful and these are become spaces that people want to hang out in, that's going to make a successful village. And he was absolutely right. I agree with that. I think that a big problem that has been discussed over and over again are that young people are leaving Long Island. It's too expensive to live here. They want those spaces. They want those beautiful apartments that you build. They want to be able to be proud for their parents and their friends to come over and show that they're doing well in their life. And they're not living in the upstairs of a Cape Cod or in the basement of somebody's home. And I've been at these meetings and I see the local opposition sometimes because people are just concerned about change. And one of the things that really make me laugh are the battles over how many parking spaces there are. I mean, people find a spot to park their car. I mean, look at living in Brooklyn and stuff, you know. But mm -hmm. anyway, the one of the things that I also appreciate a lot about your project, you're not just going in there and saying we're creating affordable housing. You're going in there and with an eye on architecture and probably because you want your legacy to be that you built these beautiful properties. Yeah, it, and I think it is a large part of the reason why we're able now finally start to take on a different perception in the public. When we start to talk about affordable and or workforce housing in a community or market rate housing for that matter, that people recognize that this is not the type of housing that was built 40 years ago, which really was deplorable from day one, but it's housing that anybody would be really proud to live in. And that, that's been a big part of our message and the way we roll our projects out and design our projects is that we want them to be indistinguishable from any other high-end market rate of project so that people are really proud to live there and people are proud to have these developments as their neighbors. One of the other organizations that I know that you're usually involved with is the in the Interfaith Nutritional Network. Tell us a little bit about them and the amazing things we do. And also tell us about your work in the kitchen there as a <laughs> chef at times. <laughs> so the Interfaith Nutritional Network has been around for about 30 years. They're one of the largest providers of shelter and a food source for folks who are homeless on Long Island. And they are a collection of some of the most compassionate, wonderful people that I've ever met. They are a not-for-profit. They have several shelters that are scattered throughout Long Island. I think it's 97% of all dollars that are contributed to the inn go directly towards care of the folks that they uh, look after. And they have a wide uh, volunteer network and some of the most committed paid staff that I have, I've ever come across. Gene Kelly, who 
runs the inn, is a miracle worker. And it's not just about feeding and housing these folks, but also helping them help themselves, helping them get back up on their feet. You know, the objective is not to house them forever, but to allow them then to transition into better life conditions for themselves. Doesn't always work. Some of the folks that they look after are in situations where that's that process is a little bit more challenging than others, but many are able to transition their way back into better living environment for themselves and, and more permanent housing. And there are a lot of great success stories. But they're they're just a really a fantastic organization and we're really proud um, to be part of it. And I'm also extraordinarily proud that they are honoring DNF development this year. Well, that's fantastic. And the fact that you support them financially is amazing through your hard work and your business skills. But you also cook for them sometimes, don't you? So you're actually in the mix getting your hands dirty. You're not just one of those wealthy philanthropists who just sends a check. Well, I had the good fortune of being allowed to come in and work in a kitchen to uh, cook dinners for uh, some of the guys in the, in the men's shelter uh, a few years back. And that was a, just a really a rewarding experience. And I, uh, I chose to make salmon for them. And many of them, to my surprise, had never even tasted salmon. So it was it was a really great experience for them. It was a great experience for me to see them. And I was, frankly, when I found out that many of them hadn't had it already, I, I was worried that some of them might not like it. But I don't think it had anything to do with my cooking ability, but they all loved it. So that, that was a big win. The other thing that we've really enjoyed doing with Ian is sponsoring a, a, an annual 5K race to raise awareness and funds for the inn. And that's, that's been a fun fun event that we've held in, in Seaford. We're looking for a new race course right now. So we haven't done it in the last uh, year, but I think that very soon again, we'll, we'll get that back up and running. I would think 5K is just a warm-up for you. <laughs> Is that just the stretch out 5K? Well, I enjoy directing the race, you know, and uh, it was funny. A couple of years ago, I I directed that race on a Saturday, and then that night ran off to Scranton, Pennsylvania, where I ran a marathon the following day. (laughs) That's crazy. Well, a lot of times that I say I'm going to do something, and the reason that I say I'm going to do something is so then I have to do it. So it's kind of my way of putting my own back up against the wall or else I feel that a lot of things in my life that I would be concerned about, I wouldn't do. So I'm saying this in the podcast, but I would like to run a 5K run in one of your events and help raise some money for the causes that you're looking for. So now that I've said it, (laughs) I better start getting myself in a little bit of shape. All right. right. Well, we'll start. Training starts right now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) tomorrow. Can we start tomorrow? Sounds good. (laughs) So Peter... When you play your cello for the last time, (laughs) I understand you're a great musician also, which I don't know how many more things we can talk about with you. But when it's all said and done and you put your head on the pillow to rest, what do you look at as your legacy? What are you so proud about that you've contributed? I'm hoping that uh, folks can look back on our body of work and then feel that, you know, we made a difference. Maybe it's a, it's a small amount of difference, but we made a difference in some people's lives and, and we, we were able to create some housing where 
where those opportunities had not previously existed. And not only the opportunities, but also that they were uh, places to live that people felt proud that they were part of those communities and the people that lived around them were proud that those communities were near them. But most importantly, I hope that people look back on me and say, you know, that you made a positive uh, difference, you know, in my life. I just got to say, it's amazing for me to finally sit here with you without somebody tugging on your arm and pulling you in different directions and stuff. And and I'm extremely grateful and, and you make a huge difference in my life and many other people's lives. Great discussion, really. You know, it's fun to talk about uh, and also just helpful for me to remind me about some of the interesting and inspiring uh, moments. Continue to life. say things to people like you said to <laughs> me because you've made a huge difference with me. Your story and your inspiration, I really hope will transpire to other people that listen to this and help them through situations that they battle through. Well, I think you have a future in this business. I really do. I think you did a great job. I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I have and I hope that Peter inspires you as much as he inspires me you can hear our podcast and find out more information about us on our website pioneertruck.com or on Apple Podcasts SoundCloud and Spotify don't forget to hit subscribe and follow us talk to you all soon